Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. On this episode, we hear from Tim Wu, author of The Master Switch and professor at Columbia Law School, who discussed his new book, The Attention Merchants, The Epic Scramble to Get Inside Our Heads. He discussed the historical origins of the attention economy, how people are fighting back against the encroachment of advertising, and considerations for media and technology companies. The event was co-sponsored by the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard and was moderated by Erie Meyer, a fall 2016 Joan Shorenstein Fellow and founding member of the US Digital Service. Uh, welcome everyone, we're so excited to see you today. Um, this is part of the Shorenstein Center's speaker series and I'm Erie Meyer. I'm currently a Joan Shorenstein Fellow at the Shorenstein Center. So first I want to start out thanking Tim for being here today. Uh, Tim Wu is an author, a privacy advocate, and a professor at Columbia's uh, Columbia Law School and director of the Pollock Center for the study of, the, of First Amendment issues at the Columbia Journalism School. His new book, The Attention Merchants, and it's excellent, The Epic Scramble to Get Inside Our Heads, is an account of how uh, the capture and resale of human attention became the defining industry of our time. So Wu's best-known work is the development of net neutrality theory, uh, but he also writes about private power, free speech, copyright, and antitrust. His book, The Master Switch, has won wide recognition and uh, various awards, of course. Um, so he also worked, he's, he's a total nerd, it's wonderful. He worked at the Federal Trade Commission during the first term of the Obama administration. He's worked at the chair of, media, of the media reform group, the Free Press. Um, as a fellow at Google, he worked for, he also worked for uh, Riverstone Networks in the telecommunications industry. That was my heavy geek period. It was full on <laughs> Silicon Valley, uh, Pocket ro- router technology. Yeah, that was the, that was, okay, sorry. Oh, no, it's perfect, <laughs> that was, that was I love it. Um, he was also a law clerk for Judge Richard Posner and Justice Stephen Breyer. He also uh, graduated from McGill University uh, and from Harvard Law School. Wu is also a contributing writer at the NewYorker.com and also a former contributing editor at the New Republic. He's won uh, several awards from the Scientific American Magazine, the National Law Journal, 02138 magazine and the World Economic Forum and has won has tw- apologies twice won the Lowell Thomas Award for travel writing. So um, just as we get started, I want to uh, invite everyone to give him a round of applause for being so great to be here. With us today. Um, so Tim, uh, part of the reason we're excited you're here is the Venn diagram of things that you're interested in and passionate about lines up just about perfectly with both the Berkman Klein Center and the Kennedy School. Right. Um, and we're really excited because your new book, uh, The Attention Merchants, hits on the industry that we will need to understand for yeah. their work to be successful. So yeah. if you would indulge us, um, sure. will you talk a little bit about your new book? Sure. Well, let me, before I do that, thank you for hosting and uh, say what is it. And, and the Berkman Center for, for hosting Berkman Klein Center. Uh, it is, you know, kind of a, an honor and a dream come true to come back to your school to give, give a talk. I, I, you know, I came to a lot of these talks uh, when I was a student and, you know, sort of a dream one day to, to come back. So I'm always, and I still sort of walk around, feel like a student and can't believe I'm the one uh, doing the talking. So it, it is a privilege. I was at the Berkman Center, I'm more linked to the, the Berkman Center, um, at its founding, 
when it was basically this fellow, uh, Charlie Nesson, and this young guy named Jonathan Zetrain kind of sitting in a room <laughs> with a big fish tank. So that, that, was, uh, that was the early days, and it's uh, really grown the, the Berkman Center into a, into a force. It was a force then, but it has become a real force for good in the world. So, and uh, Shorenstein's that I'm less familiar with, but I'm, thank you for, for hosting. We're pretty great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let me tell you about this, uh, the new book. Uh, the, the title of the book is The Attention Merchants, and uh, it is really a history of a business model. It sounds uh, funny, but that's what it is. Um, it, the business model in question is the model of uh, resale of human attention. That is, gathering up eyeballs or access to the public's mind and selling it to advertisers. This is a business model which uh, has long anchored the, the media, particularly television and, and newspaper industries. Uh, but over the last uh, 10 years, or maybe 20 years, has sort of exploded into all parts of our life, mainly through the rise of internet companies that depend on advertising. And I think advertising or, or resale of human attention has become part of an enormous number of business models. I was Thinking, noticing today the National Park Service is considering allowing increasing ads in, in, in national parks. Uh, that in Washington State they've already done so, so you can kind of name a trail after you, you know, if you're a corporate advertiser or so on. So I, I think this is a, is a big issue. So like Colgate Trail? Yeah, like Colgate Trail. Or like the, um, what's it? They had this thing in uh, Washington State where they um, buried giant Chirito burritos all over the park. That sounds delicious. Like, no, giant ones, like three feet. Perfect. Not, 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 <laughs> not fake ones. And then you would dig them up and return them for a prize or something like that. So, so you know, things like that. Now, it's sort of amusing at some level, but, you know, the idea, I always think of parts, well, I'll get into this later, but parks were, I think, designed to be sort of uh, refugees from commercialism, so I have some feelings about that. Um, the... Uh, so that's, the, that's the, the premise of the book. And as I said, it's history. What I think is interesting is this business model, which now is, you know, we're so used to it. I mean, how many times a day um, are you, do you face some effort to get your attention for something? It, it's kind of strange um, uh, how our lives are. I think probably, it'd be interesting to count, maybe a thousand times a day, something tries to get us to even pay a microsecond, you know, to absorb a brand, get an idea, hear about something, you know, you just actually had a, a few efforts no, 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 for a good cause, but good causes, bad causes, we're constantly, you know, uh, having entities trying to get little, little bits of attention. And I think it is a little bit changing the deepest ambition of the book is to say this is having an effect on the human condition, affecting who we are, how we experience life. Part of why I was motivated to write this book, I think, is something um, maybe some of you have experienced that feeling where you go to the web and you, you have this idea you're going to write an email and then sort of start and almost like almost like involuntarily you start to click on some story like three celebrities from the 90s who you know who never really made it or something and you're like I gotta know and then, then like your hand moves out of your control click and then all of a sudden something happens and hours can go by like maybe four and you wake up and you're like what just happened so that, that I kind of call the casino effect and I think that's you know, an exaggerated version, but I think I, I guess I'm concerned about you know a living environment uh, that is trying to take us away from focus, from concentration, from other people, and taking us uh, toward um, you know kind of mindless uh, 
distraction for the purpose of advertising. That, that's what I'm concerned about in this book. I'm going on a little bit, but I said it was a history. I, I locate this, I'm going to tell you the whole book, but I locate the origins of this business model, the attention merchant business model, uh, in the 1830s uh, with the New York City Penny Press. Um, before that point, if you'll indulge me for this, this quick bit of history. This is part of my favorite part of it. Oh, good. <laughs> um, so, the newspapers, uh, once upon a time, were not mass media, really. They were sold to a, you know, small groups of people, usually the business and financial elite. The circulation of New York's greatest paper in 1830 was, I think, 2,000, in a city of several hundred thousand. So these were you know, almost like academic journals or something, you know, read by a very a few number of people. Um, and they were expensive. Well, six cents was expensive at, at the time. So this fellow, Benjamin Day, who gets credit in my mind as the first attention merchant, had this uh, ingenious business idea. It's sort of familiar to us now. He thought he would lower dramatically the price of the paper, so to a penny. He would begin to cover stories that were of much broader interest. The first issue, which he wrote and edited and printed himself, uh, the first story was this really uh, moving story short about a man who had uh, been split from his fiancée and was being shipped off to Indonesia by his parents who didn't want the marriage to go forward and so had committed suicide in this tragic way. So melancholy suicide was the opening. So there were stories about that, stories of people fighting, um, stories of uh, drunkards being arrested, human interest stories basically for a mass audience, and as I said earlier, a low price. And the key idea that Day had when he started the New York Sun was to see his consumers or see his readers not as his consumers but as his product. I think he was the first person to really appreciate the idea. You gather a crowd, we've gathered a crowd right here, and you're really not interested in that crowd for its money or its as customers but because you can resell them to someone else who wants their attention. So that, in that moment, when he began to make money from that model, a very different one that we experience all the time, but still I think is counterintuitive business model, selling eyeballs or so, selling audience was, was born. And as I said, it's gone from that relatively obscure origin, a very sort of limited part of society, to become part of everything. Um, I think we're at a time, um, one of the things I'm interested in, I think we're in a time where we're kind of almost obsessed or, or addicted to free stuff, or free, free content, free services, the idea that everything needs to be free. But, you know, one thing I think people have started to realize over the last uh, several years is the reason it's free, obviously, is we are the product. We, you know, you are being resold. And more precisely, what is being resold is something that is very scarce, which is human attention, uh, you know, some access to your mind. Um, it is hard to get access to people's mind, and that's what makes it so valuable. Uh, it is also the case, I think, as other things become more abundant, we have enough food, generally rich countries, we have enough uh, shelter, we have clothing, you know, the basics. The few things that are still scarce become more and more <coughs> valuable. And one of the things that cannot be increased is time. Uh, each of us, man, woman, child, rich, poor, whatever, has 168 hours. You can't do anything, tried, 
<laughs> expand it. You can sleep less, but that backfires after a while, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> so you have that fixed resource, 168 hours, you know, and the amount of attentional cycles we have in that period. And that resource, I think, has become kind of one of the last scarce resources. And so uh, I'm suggesting that the models of free, which have predominated, which are very attractive, I mean, almost irresistible, um, are getting at and trying to occupy that resource called attention. And that, that's essentially what the, the book is about, the scramble to get inside our heads, the, the battle for access to the public mind. I have more to say about the book, but maybe I shouldn't ramble on and, and leave this for the, some questions. <laughs> that, yeah. was, that was a particularly smart ramble, so we'll allow it. Um, so one of the things that you say that I, in the book, which I think is interesting, is that politicians, professional wrestlers, and rappers know well Trash talking remains an effective way of getting attention. Right. So, as I read both the history of attention merchants as, right. and towards you, when you uh, nudge towards the future, I wondered: Do you ever imagine this this tome uh, becoming <laughs> a guidebook or a playbook for uh, people who uh, need assistance, either racing to the bottom or, or looking for new models? And, and what scares you or excites you about? Uh, uh, understanding this better. People who are getting good at getting attention don't, don't need my book, but they, they can probably pick up uh, some of, some of the, the tricks. I mean, it's interesting how universal our standard tricks are. You know, we think of trolls as a, as a current problem, but I think trolls have been around at least since the 1830s, some form or another. You know, I'll, I'll give an example. It goes back to the, the penny press again. So Benjamin Day had invented this newspaper, New York Sun, which was the first to sort of lower the price dramatically, cover interesting stuff, murder, mayhem, you know, uh, slavery, all kinds of exciting uh, topics, uh, and make a profit. In fact, he was rich. So he immediately attracted uh, competitors. And uh, one of his big competitors was the New York Tribune, run by this really weird-looking dude who was cross-eyed and strange guy who has been a school teacher, held himself out as a paragon of, of uh, virtue, but made his, got all of his attention by picking fights with the other newspaper editors. You know, he just... He was basically the first troll. His whole newspaper was trolling or stories about murder. That was it. Just like attacks, attacks like, like a professional wrestler. And people liked it. <laughs> you know, it got, it, got, it got attention. I mean, I think we've seen recently you can run an entire campaign by just going around <laughs> insulting people. So it, it's, an old, uh, it's an old technique. If you're interested in how the sun struck back. So the Tribune entered the field with uh, insult journalism and, um, uh, and m even more graphic murder stories. In fact, there's this one, I'm just going to read the passage, but I'll try and do it from memory, um, where, yeah, he, well, let me see if I can get this. Uh, Th this one is totally crazy, the woman. Yes, the woman. Yeah. Um, oh, boy, i got to see if I find it. Uh-oh. Um, oh, yeah, here's, here's one of his insults. Uh, the editors were the garbage of society, too indecent, too immoral for any respectable, uh, people, decrepit, dying penny paper, owned and controlled, this is racist actually, by a set of woolly-headed, thick-licked Negroes. That's what he called the, they weren't, anyway, that's what, uh, sorry, I probably shouldn't have put that well, up. Well, actually, yeah. I think this is an important point because the first sort of competitor in this, play, this place got attention by being pro-abolition. So the first one that thought it was right. sort of very, uh, you know, radical and interesting to be pro-abolition in New York City at this time. And, and then the competitor specifically made the business decision to right. be as rampantly anti-abolition. Right. So, so there they go, right. So they took those sides. You know, you have the origins of fighting. 
But I want to say what the Sun did to strike back, to complete the story. So they were starting to lose subscribers. These people were excited. So then they ran this amazing series of stories where they had exclusive report from the world's, the owner of the world's largest telescope in South Africa, who had discovered life on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> Reported this fact in the newspaper. The life, the first uh, life they, they saw some plants and trees. Then they saw some kind of horse-like creatures with horns, like unicorns. But the, the most interesting creature were uh, man-bats. Uh, you know, like, looked like us, a little smaller, but with uh, bat-like wings, uh, prone to fornication. That was the man-bat. So this story ran. It was, it was a sensation. I mean, imagine, you know, we, life on Mars, we hear real reports, I think, go crazy. So people went, went wild for the story. Uh, never retracted, <laughs> never, um, no, just stood, you know, and in fact, people didn't really figure out, because there was no way to know it, was, it, was, it wasn't true at the time, so they just started making up stories, so part of this shows, I think, this initial story shows some of the risks, you know, I, this book isn't totally a condemnation of the attention-seeking model, but it is a warning of the dangers, and one of the risks in markets, which are completely driven by attention-seeking, is they tend to run towards the most lurid, outrageous, attention-getting content and center there and uh, operate in a winner-take-all uh, uh, manner. And, um, you know, if you care about our culture, care about the media, it's something to be concerned about. Um, and there are constant, I think, ethical challenges, I'll say. If it's a journalism school, you'd be even more familiar with them of the need for attention that drives an attention, uh, you know, an advertising model and the ethics of, you know, making up stories or going on insult uh, tirades to do so. So, just a little answer to that. That was wonderful. So, we talked a little bit about the penny press and using salacious, sometimes even moon people, uh, to get attention. I want to talk a little bit about the Oprah model. Oh, sure. So this this is a really interesting passage in the book that examines how this how this young woman at the time who had the show where she had little people dressed as Alvin and the Chipmunks and it was sort of like this sort of bizarre existence. But uh, thanks to a date with Roger Ebert, which mm -hmm. I had no idea happened, and then mm -hmm. also. Um, some some very ambitious goals was able to sort of transition. Can you talk a little bit about sure. that? Sure. You know, I think I see Oprah Winfrey as one of the great um, innovators in this uh, area. You know, for for better for for worse in some ways. So she was um, the first person, first woman to incorporate many of the elements uh, that were formerly in different entities. So she she was a fully integrated uh, celebrity and a production company, and a sort of advertising company, and in a way a TV network all together. And um, so previously a talk show host, there were some before her, but previously talk show hosts, you know, like David Letterman or, some, or, or going further back, uh, Jimmy Carson, they, they worked for a network, you know, and advertising was done by someone else and so forth. So Oprah put those all together in herself. It resulted in her becoming enormously wealthy, dependent entirely on her. She was the prime celebrity, as opposed to the you know, celebrities being on the show. Um, and she also was the absolute master, and it's remained this way for a long time, of, no, of 
very subtly and less so uh, creating product endorsements on her show that were so incredibly influential that everyone felt they had to advertise with her and so her advertising ratings now, yeah, go ahead. if you'll all look under your chairs right now, just, sorry, just kidding, but yeah, I think that's an excellent yeah, she, point. She was the first, she really, and, and mixed a bunch of other things. The other thing she did is very successfully, in a way that is, um, other religious authorities have found have not been able to do so much, to marry uh, sort of the appeal of ministry, uh, kind of uh, offering a possibility of salvation or transcendence and, and uh, forgiveness of sins, and also consumerism and materialism without any kind of uh, inconsistency. In fact, it was part, in some ways part of the, a little bit like prosperity, like buying was, in her view, a, a way of kind of self-actualization. You buy things to make yourself the person you want to be. Uh, and so that, so using sort of the power of, of religious messaging, but not even disguised, she often said, I am a ministry, God, I am God's messenger, but also mirrored with a kind of, you should buy these products, um, was was really a successful. Uh, she uh, by 1995 was making the most money in anyone entertainment, 167 million dollars a year. And I just it's just a very fascinating thing. And she launched this uh, model, which has been copied by other families and individuals, where you have a sort of very integrated around the single celebrity um, attention merchant empire. When formerly these were disparate groups, and so. Um, you know, like the, it was followed by um, you know Martha Stewart, the Kardashians. To some extent, they have some reality TV. It's also in the book. In some ways, the Trump family and Trump himself use the same technique, where you're kind of the key celebrity and you build your own media empire. Especially after he launches his own TV channel. And I think maybe the future will be more like that. Like every really major celebrity will be their own kind of, you know, all in one production company, everything, magazine, so forth. Um, I would subscribe to Tim Wu magazine. <laughs> that's, yeah. Well, that's someone would. I don't know if anyone else follow me. Not enough content. Um, you know, it took me six years to write this book, so I'm obviously not at the not the level. Uh, I'll say. Can I say one more word about Please. the religion? One of the subtexts in this book. Uh, one of the broader ideas is there is this, as I said, this resource uh, attention, very valuable. Um, but people, I think, didn't quite realize its, it's value was not widely appreciated until the 20th century, uh, other than by organized religion. If you look back at sort of the broad sweep of human history, it's always a little dangerous, but the entities that were really interested in, in you, your mind, what you are thinking, how you pay it, you know, what you spend your time with, before the 20th century, it's mostly organized religion and in terms of institutions, and of course, you know, your family and so forth, but organized religion who wanted people praying, wanted people going to church every week or other, or other depending on the religion. Some religions want people praying multiple times a day. Uh, various ways of keeping God on the mind. Um, you know, some early Christians um, believed you should be constantly in prayer, some sects of early Christianity were like always on the mind and you know Buddhists had this uh, meditation um, it's very attention focused as well and in some ways the story of the book is both business and industry and government deciding or realizing this access to public mind is very valuable we can do stuff with it government figures this out when frankly the British government is the leader in this 
when they realize that you can use a mass propaganda campaign to raise an army, that they need people because they need them in their army and they're not willing to use conscription. Um, so that's, and, and so government propaganda is like one line. And uh, industry, after government, frankly, realizes they can sell products using advertising if they have public attention. So that, that is sort of one big theme in this book, is religion ceding its hold on our time and attention to government and, uh, and industry. Um, that's great. So you talk a little bit about the, the giant Oprah-sized celebrities. Can you talk a little bit about micro-celebrities? One of the things <laughs> that many of the students in this room have been assigned to do yes. by tyrants such as Nico um, are to sign up for Twitter and to post their ideas and articles and to build a brand. Um, yeah. You talk about that in your book. And, and what, what advice would you have for people who are, who are being assigned to make themselves micro-celebrities? And, and what does the future of that look like? It's harder than it looks. Uh, so... I think there's been a fascinating uh, transformation in what celebrity is over the last even 50 years. Um, uh, I think David Weinberg in this room said, in the future will be famous to 15 people. Did you say that? Yeah. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, when Andy Warhol said, in the future will be famous for 15 minutes, he had this idea of famous that was very fixed. Right? He had this idea of famous, which is some transcendent beyond our normal humanity, like you know, like the Queen of England or Greta Garbo or, you know, so beyond normal. Uh, but things have changed and the sort of circles of what's called famous have gotten smaller and smaller. Now, maybe it was always that way and it's just easier to recognize. You know, something like Twitter where you can see how many followers people have is like a microscope that can, can conduct levels of fame which previously were invisible. Yeah. You know, so a well-known professor, I mean professors are fam can be famous in their way or even a grad student can be famous in their way, maybe you know, a couple hundred people. Um, so yeah, I think fame has really changed. Another thing that the, the, the show talks about is you know, re reality television in the, in beginning in the, in the 90s seeming to off offer the lottery of fame to potentially anyone. You know, uh, one of the ideas I have, if you think of fame as yet another kind of currency, that um, it has some consistency with the uh, American, this is the positive spin, that it has some consistency with the American uh, dream. Uh, the idea, well, you know, one of the ideas of America is that everyone can be, have their own land and sort of be wealthy. So you can have, a, it's not just, you know, like in Europe where there's a tiny elite who are wealthy and then no one else is. One of the early ideas of America is like you come here and everyone's a landowner, everyone is wealthy, everyone is, uh, and I think we have this idea that everyone uh, can be famous. <laughs> you know, everyone gets their own sort of plot of fame and there you go. That's sort of the positive story and micro fame accessible to everyone. The negative story is that it, uh, Somewhat, maybe like the wealth story, that uh, in fact the disparities remain. It's extremely hard to become famous in any real way and that you know, the pursuit of fame can turn people into desperate hankering creatures who suffer the same kind of problems that celebrities do without any of the upsides. So that's it. <laughs> We've got a huge paparazzi problem here over right. at the Shorenstein Center. So yeah, you do. I, I think you can. Yeah, so that, that's, but do I have advice for people for managing my thing? You know, it's fun, but don't take it too seriously. That's my advice because it's, <laughs> you know, it, it's a... It's a competitive game. It's, you know, attention is incredibly... One thing you learn from this book, or you know, running for office is another thing I learned this from, or if you ever try and sell a book or do anything, 
getting it, it's, it's not like you write something and people read it. I think maybe, maybe people realize that now. But um, it is always way much harder than you think to get heard, I just, for a million different reasons. I will say the main reason is biological, that the default setting for our brains is ignore everything. Right? When you, this is one thing I discussed in the book. I, I spent some time in an intentional lab to, to research this book, which was at Columbia, which was enjoyable. And the most striking thing is just that we ignore almost everything. I don't know if you even just heard what I just said, but <laughs> you ignore. <laughs> we ignore, well, because the amount of stimuli constantly coming at our brain, you know, I can't remember, someone calculated the number of bits, but it's like terabits of something, through all our you know, portals of sensation. So we can't pay attention to everything. So there is a <coughs> cursor, you know, we have a cursor that's just on one thing. Uh, you know, maybe it's on your phone, Maybe it's, maybe it's, um, I mean, you can focus it, you can, if you want to do this experiment, feel the bottom of your feet right now and see how they're feeling. So you can control where it goes, sort of, but it's always darting around and there's only really one thing you can ever pay attention to at once. And um, that's one of the reasons it's so hard to ever get the attention of anybody else, or why it's so hard to be heard. So, there you go. Um, one of the things that you mentioned was one of the first uh, sort of technical approaches to attention blocking, um, or uh, really the first ad blocker was a remote mm -hmm. control. That's right. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? And also, you know, lots of people are familiar with ad blockers on their browser. Um, some people even have productivity apps that yes. uh, reduce connectivity. Um, you talk a little bit about the, the yeah. impulse to check in. Can you talk about the original ad blocker and then also where you sure. see tools catching up or not catching up to how we'd like to live? Yeah, great, great question. So um, that story of the remote control centers on Zenith, the the uh, American uh, electronics company, which was, I don't know, how many people here know, have heard of the company Zenith? Most people. So, in the day, in the, in the 1920s, it's not my day really, but <laughs> in, in another day, you know, I, I, as a professor I get older, I like to pretend I'm older than I am. And I can students. confirm for the folks listening in, he does have patches on yeah. his elbows. <laughs> I like to pretend, so I'll say, you know, I remember back in the Eisenhower administration when we were thinking about these problems, and people are like, oh, they don't, I don't think they believe that. But they do, I can fool my students to think I was like fully alive and doing stuff in the 20s and 60s, and they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> I, was, I remember when the Rolling Stones got started. <laughs> anyway. Trolls, um, man. No. Uh, like, so, uh, what was I talking about? Zenith, the company. They were, um, <laughs> Zenith was kind of the maverick company of its day. In the 1920s they started, they were run by this guy, the Commodore, who had this enormous boat. He parked in the Chicago Harbor, had big parties. Uh, he invented, you know, he was one of the radio guys. I think he invented the first car radio that ran uh, without extra power. So it ran off the car, transistor radio, I think Zenith invented. They very seriously tried to get ESP working, telepathy. They had broadcasts that said we were going to go where no other radio station ever gone, and they were like, we are now transmitting a message over the airwaves to your brain, and uh, did that a few times. I don't know how the results were, but at least they tried. Um, and one of the things that, um, not uncommon among early radio people, was the Commodore hated commercials. Well, he felt about advertising, but he felt that commercials had ruined radio, that there shouldn't have ever been allowed, that commercial radio should be non-commercial. His own, his own stations, uh, FM stations, were non, 
had no commercials. I mean, there was a time where people could not believe the idea you have commercials on radio. A little bit of, like there was a time where no one thought there'd be advertising on the internet. You know, sort of like that. It was like, what? This is a scientific invention? You're going to put it in. So he uh, one day put his uh, fist down and said, um, I'm challenging engineers of Zenith to come up with ad blocking technology or something to destroy and tune out advertisements on television. It's too much. And so they, you know, came, did all this research and they came up with what we now call the remote control. The original remote control looked different. It was a gun little thing. <laughs> and you were supposed to shoot out the annoying ads. That was the idea. <clears throat> I don't know if it worked all the time, but that was, uh, and, and one of the books, I, I read a book that was a history of the remote control, and it said this is sort of the new idea of the revolt against the conformism of the 50s was the, you know, sort of the man choosing his own destiny was shooting out ads he didn't want to see. But you can see in that the beginnings of resistance, you know, of some idea because the business model of advertising harvests our brain because it's annoying and intrusive. There are periodically revolts. One of the first ones was in, in Paris at the turn of the 20th century where they decided they'd had it with posters. And past very, you know, to France, they said that the posters were um, aesthetically disturbing and uh, <laughs> a couple somehow linked them to prostitution and things like that, so immoral. So they, they enacted pervasive regulation of outdoor spaces in Paris. And if you go to Paris, it's still true, you might not notice it, that in fact many areas are blocked off. You, you post advertising is restricted to certain areas and you can see the, the signs uh, blocking it. So that was one revolt. There's more in the book. Um, but I think in our times we may be at the beginning of, or perhaps in the middle of, another revolt against advertising and advertising content. Uh, the ad blockers are, are one example. The fact that major companies like Apple have gotten involved there's browsers like the Brave browser, which I, people may not know. I think it's a great browser, which you know set up. What is it? Brave. It's a browser that uh, blocks <coughs> advertising from the get-go and then tries to renegotiate the terms under which you'll watch ads. I mean, some of this is not so much. All right, all advertising is evil. We hate it, and we're just selfish. It's more of some of it is like, look, this deal is a lot of control. You know, like I will watch some ads, but you've gone too far when it. You know, my screen explodes and I have to click. Do you ever have this feeling where you try to go to a site and then you're like clicking on five things before you can see it, like like swatting mosquitoes kind of before you start? How much time? So I think we're in the middle of a revolt. I think technology, since remote control, has played some role in that. Um, and I'm very interested to see what role it has now. And I think there's a <coughs> dignity. I, I, I believe strongly in the power of consumer resistance and revolts. <laughs> as well as political revolutions and revolts to sort of revitalize, to, to be a final check. You know, the, the blood of the uh, system needs to be revitalized, no, sorry, the system needs to be revitalized by the blood of the patriots, as Jefferson says every so often. And I think it's important that uh, uh, we, we take these revolts now and let things go too far. Yeah. Oh, All that's right. great. Um, so I guess one of the things that's interesting is uh, you have said publicly that if you have a mission of, in life, mm -hmm. it's to fight bullies. Oh, yeah. I like to stand up for the little guys. Um, so I also know that a lot of people at the Kennedy School or folks here from the iLab or the Berkman Klein Center are looking at sustainable business models for mm. journalism products, for um, you know, augmented reality uh, experiences for hardware startups. 
So being a student of the history of, a t uh, of attention merchants and yeah. also somebody who's dedicated to making the world better for the, the little people, um, mm -hmm. what advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs, whether uh, models to consider or to avoid or things that you wish existed and didn't? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, it's something I feel I struggle with uh, personally. Um, I think a lot of the people who have gone into tech, myself you know, self included over the last 30 years or so, have been very idealistic people who wanted to make the world a better place one way or another. And then, you know, in some ways my book is, is tough on people in the sense that companies are hard to build. A lot of the content producers are desperate for money and, you know, advertising is one way of funding a, a, a company. Um, and you know the paid models really haven't worked so well, so I am sympathetic to that. Um, one of the chapters in this book uh, dwells on uh, the decision making of Google, which I think is a really interesting story in this somewhat Faustian, um, uh, and maybe has some lessons for for people in it. Um, so Google um, obviously built a good search engine. But at one point, they were bleeding money early in their, uh, you know, early in their uh, careers. They were bleeding money, um, and they didn't really know what to do, and uh, so they thought about advertising. But the trick with Google, or particularly with founders, particularly Larry Page, is Page had personally written the manifesto. It's an appendix to his uh, search, his famous paper on search algorithms, where he declared that. Advertising-funded search engines will always be biased, will never serve the interests of people, and that search engines should, to the extent possible, avoid all advertising or they will never be any good. So he wrote this tirade against advertising and how it's inherently corrupting. So, you know, he did that in 96. So four or five years later, they then turned to advertising. Now, what Google did, what they believed is, you know, with a little bit of Silicon Valley sort of optimism, they thought they could do a Diet Coke solution. All the taste, none of the calories. They could square the circle. So they came up with AdWords, um, which they believed was a form of advertising that um, actually made the product better and that didn't bother people. So this was their, their idea. And I think that was true at the beginning. I don't know if you remember Google like 10 years ago. Very occasionally an ad would show up uh, 10 or 15 years ago. And it was usually designed to be very associated with your interests. Um, and uh, often they didn't run any ads at all. So this was a sort of very dignified, this was their approach to it. How quaint. Yeah, so it was, <laughs> and, and it seemed great. Um, the problem is that having made that choice, it's a slightly Faustian side of it, is ultimately, and I don't think and Google still has a great product, but the demands of the ad attention model have have grown and grown and grown and grown and grown on them and forced them to make more and more decisions which I think are a little less noble and the longer it gets the worse it gets. Uh, you know I think Google I think they've increasingly blurred the line between what are real the, the, the results that are organic and those that are ads. I mean you can't sometimes you can't tell if it's an ad or not they, they sort of make it more subtle. Uh, Google Maps I think is um, there's increasing questions as to what, why and when Google Maps shows you things. You know, on what, I noticed when Uber started showing up as one of the options like to get places. That, 
like a product. So, you know, they have, and all the tech, one of the things that has bothered me about, and maybe this is just the nature of life and I'm an idealist, but many of the major platforms, the web platforms, the last three or four years, I don't think have gotten much better for consumers, but have definitely gotten better as ad platforms. You know, so, so much of the talent effort now is going into making, essentially convince you to click on things. So, you know, there was one engineer I quote in the book who says, all the talent of our generation has gone into trying to convince people to click on ads. And that's, you know, a lot of really smart people putting all their efforts so that, you know, you'll click on something. It's sort of, sort of a sad uh, outcome. So what do I have to say for, for, for entre, uh, you know, for people going in, uh, into tech? I think tech is very influential, and I think that, um, you know, it is important that people who have good motives are in that industry because I actually think day-to-day -day life tech is changing or affecting our lives more than probably as much or more than government when you think like what has really changed the way you live day-to-day -day? a lot it really it's our, our personal technologies and if they are in fact affecting or influencing who we are on a day-to-day -day basis well, then having people of um, virtue design these systems is really important so I, I applaud people with motives who go into them I think, this gets more, sh I'm not going to tell people, I, I think, I wish if I look back that Google, if it had been as well-intentioned as it said it was, should have considered a different kind of corporate form, uh, or considered a different type of model altogether. You know, I, have a, I give Wikipedia a lot of credit for going nonprofit, and you know, of all the places, you, there's problems with Wikipedia, I'm not saying it's perfect but it has sort of maintained its integrity. Uh, I give even more credit to the original internet uh, on, uh, engineers and inventors who basically just you know, did their research and put it out there. You know, whenever they, whoever built email didn't exactly look for some payoff and shareholders. I mean, email is much more valuable than, than any of these technologies or, um, uh, uh, or you know, the design of uh, HTML or the design of TCP IP, but not, these guys have had successful careers but they haven't, you know, faced demands of shareholders. That that model that you that has to be the the model which every new technology comes has its real limits and is I guess what we're ha we're having the payout now that we're being forced to pay through the attentional models, um, and very little that is, you know, from the 2000 inventiveness has ended up in the public domain, and I think that's that's a it's a problem as compared to the 70s. For example, you think of all the incredible inventions of the 70s, many of them went to the public domain. I'm thinking here, now I'm talking to the tech geeks in the audience, but I'm thinking of like the internet protocol, uh, email, um, uh, I guess later HTML and so forth. Those went into the public. And nothing from the last 15 years has gone into the public. And instead, we, we all feel like, not nothing, but very few things. We all feel we have to use it. You know, all the tools of our life are search and, and social networking and, and so forth. But on the other hand, they're all driven by business models which take more and more of a price on our consciousness. So that's my big speech on that. So uh, <laughs> we're going to start taking questions from the crowd. So uh, please indicate to these wonderful folks with microphones. But I have a quick micro question. Sure. Have you ever clicked on an ad on purpose? That's an interesting question. I think, I think yes. All right. All right. Let's open it up for questions. <laughs> I think I wanted to buy those razors. <laughs> <laughs> you know those razors that are cheaper? I don't know cheaper? if it worked. Well, <laughs> um, from the Berkman Klein Center. I just want to offer two positive examples of where attention has helped. Uh, Facebook 
recently put the uh, call to register <coughs> vote um, prominently on their site, and I think that made a huge impact, actually, the number of, of people registered. And then groups like Abaz.org do these mass mailings. I don't understand them, but they're masters of you know, making you feel like you must support this cause. Mm -hmm. And the money that comes back from that, that, that goes out to groups that really need it, is, is powerful. So I think there's also great models to look at for using this power of attention uh, positively. No, no I, I wouldn't disagree with that. I mean, we're talking about a resource of great value. And um, it's, it's a neutral thing, attention. You know, attention, uh, the attention, well, merchant, the merchant is, uh, you know, inherently commercial. But this idea of gathering up attention and then using it for some purpose, it's not inherently good or evil. The purpose could be, you know, give to charity. It could be, like, support, you know, victims of the latest disaster in the world. There's all kinds of good reasons to, to communicate. I mean, this is basically communications. Or, you know, tell people the news. I mean, the news is an incredibly important function. So, you know, I, I'm not saying... Oh, we should all live in our own worlds, completely separated, and never pay attention to anything that anyone tells us. That's not that quite what I'm nice too, saying. Uh, this, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, there's more than one thing. My book is a call for the reestablishment of you know more closed off and, and sort of almost sacred spaces where you try to not have that be your life. But I, I don't, you know, I believe in civilization. How's that? <laughs> is that my answer? I, I believe in a public sphere to be. Sewer Harvard, a Habermasian kind of public sphere. I believe in these kind of things. Great. Um, we had another question. Uh, yeah. yeah, Pernod de Philippe from the Berkman Center. Uh -huh. um, so you, you, you say how we are like in the middle of a rebellion with yeah. uh, the use of ad blocker and things like this. But um, I feel that, in fact, there is, there is actually a very deep problem in the sense that uh, um, the, the advertisement actually become invisible and the, the issues at the level of the discovery as uh, we have those platforms that do not really show us advertisement anymore but might decide what kind of content we are exposed to potentially according to whether or not they get paid on the back end mm -hmm. uh, by the people promoting this content. And so in this case, like, the rebellion against the advertisement as advertisement is kind of like easy, like, because we actually see those advertisements, mm -hmm. but then how are we supposed to rebel, or like, how, how can we deal with the fact that uh, advertisement then becomes completely inherently incorporated into the right. actual content that is delivered? Right, that's a good question. Um, so, you know, ad blockers in a way are not the most sustainable or mature form of rebellion. They, they do signal something, but, you know, part of it is driven by, I think, not the best motive, which is this is really, there's something to, this is too annoying and I'm, I'm saying no. There is something to that and I think it's important that pe eventually we stand up and be like, no, no more. I wish I could do that for like the ads in the back of taxi cabs and other things that are like stealing from you, I think. Uh, so there's something to that, but I don't think it, you know, obviously people need to make money. There's a place for responsible advertising and so forth. Uh, one of the things I also advocate or believe in I used to be the kind of person who thinks that they should never pay for anything ever on the web, and I <laughs> have decided that that uh, attitude, which really came from my teenage years, is a little bit dated. I, so I think if you want to really support content you like, you got to pay for it. I'm going to sound like a public radio ad now, but I, I <laughs> kind of believe that, um, that subscription that come from that impulse, less that you're almost buying it, but that you're supporting it, is an important thing. There's a difference between buying and supporting. 
It's a subtle difference in motive, but I think an important one. And, you know, frankly, a lot of um, journalism and media is not really a great business. And um, so when you are paying for the scripture, you are, you're, you're supporting it. Now, so, so I, basically my bottom line is we, maybe we need to suck up and pay for more stuff. That's great. Um, I thought I saw a question back there. I heard two echoes, and I'd like you, if you also hear those echoes, uh, to respond to them. Uh, one is uh, Guy Debord's work on society of the spectacle, and some comments on the society of the spectacle, which I reread this year uh, in light of the, the campaign. And also, um, <clears throat> if we're either famous for 15 minutes or only to 15 people, what does that have to do with the true fan theory? Uh, the true fan theory. Uh, I'm not. I, I, I'm not. I'm afraid familiar with the true fan theory, though. I appreciate uh, the question. I think that's that Harry is actually Slytherin. No, I'm just sorry. Oh, we're getting to, to Harry, Harry Potter. Yeah, I'm also not familiar with the fan theory. True, true fan theory is from Kevin Kelly, and if you have a hundred oh. people who are true fans, you can support. They can support your work. Got it. Oh, you know that's a good that's a good point. Uh, I'm, I'm I, I like Kevin Kelly, and I have uh, read many of his works, but I hadn't uh, heard of his true fan theory. It it goes slightly to the difference between ad-supported media ecosystems, the, the second point, and uh, ad-supported media ecosystems. And I think there's a lot of lessons in there from the 1950s and in, in, in television. I'll just briefly say that paid models, you know, they have their problems. But they support, I believe, a much broader variety of content. Um, you know, and it, it, uh, because as you just stated, you don't need um, an enormous number of people to have a viable product offering. Ad models, because the model of the media is dependent on having a minimal size of audience to be a plausibly sellable, requires the underlying uh, content to m more generally be mass content. And so this is uh, one of the reasons I think you've seen a transformation of television over the last um, uh, you know, 15 years with the, with the rise of paid content. So once upon a time, um, you know, television was three networks and, and absolutely driven by advertising content and absolutely rating-based. Television's expensive. And they soon found by the late 1950s that it was a very winner-take-all kind of market. So whoever was running against I Love Lucy on Monday nights was losing money because 70 million people were watching I Love Lucy and the other shows were all losing money. Um, and if they wanted... So the, the contest very quickly in television, to surprise the people who had hoped television would be sort of this uh, promising, uh, diverse, interesting medium, very quickly became a race to the... Uh, absolute uh, middle, and you know there were some good shows in the middle, Gunsmoke, I Love Lucy, but they were not always the most challenging shows, and the sort of um, shows like Ed Morrell's See It Now were, were cancelled because they just didn't have the ratings. So uh, if you have true fans, and, um, and if you have enough people who you know want to buy the product, you can have a broader uh, ecosystem, and I think television uh, which now gets 50% of its revenue non-advertising, has become better as a result. So I'll just leave it there. Great. Hi, uh, Derek Jackson, one of the Shorenstein Fellows. Right. Um, 
you've talked eloquently about uh, the the eyeball the industry getting your eyeballs uh, mm -hmm. and distraction <coughs> and, and in a general social um, it's a negative impact on uh, but for you what's mm -hmm. been your hardest struggle um, to <laughs> And how that that might instruct us, the rest of us. Uh, what what's the impulse that you get conscious of? Yes. Oh, they're getting my eyeball at a time. I don't want them to get my. Yes, that's a great that's a great question. Uh, you know, this book, all books probably come from a personal place, or at least ones that are interesting to read. And <laughs> at some level, I mean, you know what I mean. At some yeah. at some level, you need a connection to the material. Um, and I think. The control of attention is a struggle for me, struggle for, for everyone. Um, one of the places, this is going to sound like ridiculous, but I'm going to say it anyway. One of the places I decided I need to write this book was deep in the Utah desert, where I went uh, on a 10-day like solo trip, just like in the desert. Um, it wasn't fasting, but I was in the desert. Uh, and uh, I came out of that, and not necessarily with much profound insight, but with the idea that oh, the way I normally spend my time, attention is definitely, you know, is, is changing, is very unusual. So it doesn't obviously know computers or anything. And uh, I, I felt quite different afterwards. And I noticed, for example, the time just seemed to pass in very different ways. You know, some, like an hour sometimes could feel like an entire week or just the experience was, was uh, un unusual. And so that got me motivated to think about it. I, um, I think, like many of us, have adapted the habits of our times. You know, I sort of compulsively uh, check in with, I feel like I need to see email. Um, maybe I was, let me speak a little bit more to this. What, uh, yeah, I think I had a sense that um, it's gonna make me sound like a control freak, but of of, of losing control, um, and uh, wondering that casino effect I described. <coughs> I think that was the most thing. It's like I sort of be, and then the weird part is I liked the web. I always supported the web. I'm sort of a tech person, but then I thought like, wow, I don't necessarily feel good about how I spent that time. You know, the three hours where I spent clicking or doing random stuff. Sometimes I would say, okay, I'll just go, the, you know, half an hour or whatever. But sometimes it'd be three or four hours. I'm like, what happened there? And I would have preferred if I'd spend that time reading a novel or watching a movie or something. And I started like thinking about how I felt after these attentional experiences. And I think it got to autonomy. I, I decided I preferred experiences that I had cho deliberately, voluntarily chosen to undertake, <laughs> that that mattered to me. And I thought, you know, what matters more than our autonomy if you really care about self-development? I'm a big fan of John Stuart Mill, Chapter 3, in On Liberty, which is about, like, essentially the idea of life being a kind of building of character and self-development. And his point, kind of obvious, is if you do want to sort of self-develop, become who you could be, um, you need to make decisions that are yours and feel... And he's talking about lack of censorship or social norms driving you around, but also, you know, losing control of where you what information you absorb, what you spend your time with, that struck me as a threat to being who I wanted to be. How's that? Great. Um, we will take <laughs> one more question. Here. Hi, I'm Marcus. 
Um, I'm Marcus Breyer. I'm a Shorenstein Fellow as well. Uh -huh. And I have a question after listening to you. I can't figure out whether, um, and I haven't read the book, so maybe that's my fault, um, right. whether, whether the book is sort of, or, or your approach to this is like a manifesto for policy change, or whether it's more of a self-help book. That, like, uh, is, there, is there a third option? <laughs> <laughs> Is there, a, is there a narrative nonfiction? I, I, I guess it's neither. How's that? Well, so is this a problem for public policy? Do we need legislation to fix this, or do we just need to educate ourselves about our own intention stands, mm, okay. how we use media in a deliberative or not deliberative way? So that's an that's a, that's a easier question to respond to. It is one of the things I struggled in this book and this gets a little bit to the, the writing of the decision of what kind of way to present a book, is how much to make this uh, legally prescriptive. Like how much, should I end the book with a series of, of uh, ideas for um, uh, change? That's a very, you know, sort of traditional thing if you're a policy person. Um, I decided uh, not to, but for a, a number of reasons. Um, one is, th this has to go with, do with craft more than what, what I think. Um, one is, it is very challenging have recovered 300, I, I, I find the format of a book is not particularly good uh, for that this sort of thing. Um, you know, you spend, here I've done the sweep of history with 200 years, and then you spend like, 20 pages in the chapter, here's like the legislative fixes, because they're going to be pathetic in, in 10 pages written for a popular audience compared to what you can do in an academic environment, right? Oh, you should have this kind of law. Uh, particularly a subject that is not, it's very challenging to regulate well. I mean, I think this particular thing, access to the public mind, you know, advertisers, it doesn't lend itself to like, well, single payer is a solution or something like that. You know, I, I just don't think it, it's a very subtle thing. And a lot of it, I think, does have to do with how people conduct their lives, you know, and these broader questions as to whether ad-supported media or paid media becomes more dominant and so forth. That stuff is very, or how people, you know, decide to spend their evenings, that stuff is not very sensitive. You know, I've worked in government on multiple occasions, and government is a broad brush. You know, it is a policy and, and laws are broad. They're, they're not particularly sensitive to individual situations, unless you're talking about litigation and even that. Um, so, I, I guess what I'm saying is I, I have very complex, subtle feelings about it that I didn't want to cram into the last chapter of a book and then have that be the focus of everyone's attention also. Because another tendency is if you write a book and you put a prescription in the end, um, most reviewers will turn the prescription and talk about that and miss the, the point of the book. And I, I didn't want to get in that kind of dialogue. And I didn't want to sort of defend regulatory solutions that were, um, you know, hastily, not hastily, but you really, in a public, you know, there's a place for academic writing is what I'm trying to say. And I think that's a better place for regulatory uh, ideas to be fully worked out than in the back of a, of a book. And so that, that's, that, that's the reason I did that way. In terms of what I would do, um, I think, you know, if you get down to it, I think there is room for a new era of consumer protection that is premised on the idea of protecting attention as, as a resource. 
and you know, trying to push against some of the more invasive or aggressively privacy, uh, private information taking uh, outrages of the of the ad uh, ad tech industry. I think there's room for that kind of stuff, particularly when it's not consensual. This is the mo I have an academic paper on this, by the way. Particularly, when it's not consensual. Um, I mean, the taxi cab is a good example. You know, you're paying them. You don't really agree to have these. You're in this sort of space that you feel should be yours, and suddenly you're, you know, being forced to, or at least turn off the ad or be exposed to it. It's like, well, when did I agree to that? Um, and you know, non-consensual things reaching you, uh, in law we call that battery, um, of various types. So I think that I, I be, I'm very concerned about non-consensual attention stealing, things like that. But is that, is that a, th there's my answer to your question. Part of it's form, and, par and part of it is, um, yeah. The answer for why it's not in the book is form, and then the other thing is uh, that I'm still thinking about these things. Maybe we take one more, or do you think we're, we're done? Um, we are out of time. Are you, okay. are you feeling, are you wanting no, one more? No, 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 <laughs> okay. why, don't we, why don't we finish? No, let's do one more. Do All one right, more. Um, there was a woman in the back. Yeah. Yes. Oh, it was you. Yes, yes. yes. My question is whether possibly this commerce in attention span is necessarily part of a democracy. Hmm, that's that right. If mm -hmm. everybody has to be informed, they have to learn things they may not intentionally mm -hmm. set out to learn to be informed enough to make democratic decisions. This is a great question, um, and it's one that I think I struggle with. I, it's a, it's a, a beautiful point. So one of the ideas is that a democracy that you're alluding to is the idea that part of living in a democracy or in an open society is you run into stuff you don't want to. And so if we perfect the technologies of information, of ad blocking effectively, perfect our filters, so to speak, um, we may kind of live in these worlds where we just absorb only what we want to absorb. We have filter bubbles is one word, you know, polarized cocoons and, and so forth. Um, so, you know, I have... Uh, complicated feelings about that. The first thing I'll say is that I will give the penny press, for example, credit for having created some public, uh, a sense of, of a public and of public opinion, and I, I think there obviously in democracy is some importance to that. Uh, on the other hand, I um, am resistant to the uh, idea that in order to be a democracy we all need to pay attention to the same sources of information. Um, which is the sort of underlying implication in some of the ideas. I, you know, if you think about the 19th century, for instance, where America was a flourishing democracy, there was no truly mass national media. Uh, people did live in filter bubbles, you might call them, but they were geographically defined. And I don't, you know, think, I, I don't pine for the 1950s, everyone watches the same news channel at the same time, um, like other authors, I feel like Cass Sunstein sometimes is in that uh, direction. I, I actually think there's a lot of room. You know, I'm, um, as I said, someone who is profoundly interested in democratic self-development, building of character, and I think that involves and, you know, can go wrong, but involves um, some ways uh, creating your own informational environment uh, and making your own choices. We all do it uh, anyhow. Um, and so that, that's my, my feeling about it. I, I, it, it is a, it is a, a good uh, question. And I had something else to say, but I completely forgot. So thank you so much for coming. And uh, I hope to see some of you later.
Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Centre Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.